At Urban Farm Podcast, we are all about education, and April is Foliar Feeding Month. Have you heard of it? It is a super simple application of spraying liquid organic fertilizer on your trees and garden plants. The leaves, branches, and trunks are incredible at absorbing nutrients. And if your soil isn't great or your pH is off, foliar feeding is a quick and long-lasting fix to get your plants the nutrients they need. Want to learn more? Join us for our free online webinar on how to apply this amazing process to your gardens and fruit trees. Visit urbanfarm.org to sign up. That's urbanfarm.org. Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Farmer Greg here, and welcome to the 588th episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where every day we work together to educate and inspire you to become part of your food revolution. Today on our podcast, we have someone who has a method to her gardening planting. We're talking with returning guest Jessica Walliser about science-based companion planting. Jessica co-hosted The Organic Gardeners, an award-winning program on KDKA Radio in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania for 15 years, is a former contributing editor for Organic Gardening Magazine, as well as being a co-founder of the very popular gardening website SavvyGardening.com. Jessica is the author of seven gardening books, including the Amazon bestseller Good Bug, Bad Bug, Who's Who and What They Do, and her newest book, Plant Partners, Science-Based Companion Planting Strategies for the Vegetable Garden. Jessica, we originally got to meet you on a couple of great podcast episodes, 318 and 324, back in 2017 and 2018. We talked about attracting beneficial bugs and container gardening, and both episodes were quite popular. It's been a little while. Welcome back to the show. Well, thank you so much for inviting me, Greg. I'm pleased to be here. Oh my gosh, always love to chat with you. Can you bring us up to speed on what's been happening with you since? Oh, yes. Lots, both in the garden and in life in general, right? So uh, you might have heard heard in my bio that I stopped doing the radio show after 15 years. So I switched from sort of a a freelancing career for 26 years over to sort of a, a more steady, regular desk job. But it's been a great switch. I'm still able to really focus on the website, Savvy Gardening, and on writing And it's been great. It's been a good couple of years. Nice. And you've come up with this new science-based book. Can you tell us why science-backed information is so important in gardening? Absolutely. And in particular with companion planting. And that's what this book is all about. I mean, a lot of the companion planting information that you find out there um, you know, on, on the internet and um, from various sources, you know, it's largely based on conjecture and folklore and old wives tales. There's, you know, very little information that's out there uh, that focuses on the scientific research that's out there about companion planting. And when I sort of first started mulling over the idea for this book, I was kind of like, you know, wondering why that was, right? Because on the radio show, we fielded questions all the time about companion planting and people swore by it. And yet I was always really hesitant to recommend any companion planting techniques because they were all, you know, to my mind, based on on conjecture rather than on science. But yet, as a horticulturist, I knew that plants interact with each other in many different ways. You know, they share resources, they compete for resources, 
um, you know, they they interact with each other in the, in the many layers of the garden. So I thought, well, well, we know these interactions are happening. We know that plants influence the way other plants grow. So there has to be research out there that looks at companion planting in a way that allows us to really kind of reclaim the term companion planting and take it back from folklore and put it into the realm of good sound science. And what I found is that there's literally hundreds of research studies that offer some really great information to gardeners. And how did you go about discovering the science behind it? Did you just get online or? Yeah, so thankfully, thankfully I'm a big nerd and I really do enjoy seeking out I enjoy researching for research, so to speak, right? I I enjoy looking for these studies. And one of the most interesting things that I found, and it was pretty clear right from the start, is that the scientists who do these studies actually don't call it companion planting. And in my mind, I think one of the reasons that they don't call it companion planting is because of this sort of folklore aspect of traditional companion planting. But instead, they use terms like interplanting and intercropping and creating a polyculture, you know, and, and wow. those are the terms that they use. That's the, what they use, but it's the same thing, right? It's partnering plants together for one or more benefits. It's planting plants in a community instead of as lone soldiers in a row. And that is essentially what companion planting is all about, right? They just don't use the term companion planting. They will talk about interplanting and intercropping and Mm -hmm. polyculture. And that's, I think, when you start to realize that, you start looking through the research, that's really when you see, oh, my gosh, there is a ton of research about companion planting, but it's not they don't use that term. Wow. And you would think that by looking in the realm of nature and maybe permaculture studies, you might find a lot of science-based information on how nature works in this arena. You do. And that's one of the things that I really focus on in the, the first chapter of the book, which is where I look at the ways that plant communities and plants interact with each other. How do they form these connections to each other? You know, a lot of that goes on underground, right, through the mm-hmm. mycorrhizal network, right. the fungal network. That's where communications happen. It's where nutrient transfer happens. You know, it, the root system is responsible for so much of the ways that, that plants interact with each other. Obviously, not all of them. They do an awful lot of interaction above ground as well in terms of the, the volatile chemicals that they emit, the way one plant can shade out another plant, you know, and compete for sunlight, things like that as well. But They just interact in so many really crazy cool ways. And so I talk about that in the first part of the book and then how that relates and plays into the companion planting techniques that you can employ in the vegetable garden. When you you said how they interact underground at a root level, I didn't even stop to think about that until you just said it right now. There has to be a huge amount of fungal microbial interaction that goes on underneath the ground. Yeah, there is. And a lot of people often think about that network in terms of like trees and shrubs and long-term established plant communities. And that's where a lot of, you know, the the articles that you, oh, trees talk to each other, you know, that kind of stuff. You, You see a lot of those kinds of articles out there right now. But we forget in all of that, that if you are a no-till gardener in your vegetable garden, which again, I talk a lot about in Plant Partners, 
-hmm. If you're a no-till gardener, you actually do have an established fungal network below ground that really can benefit your plants in a very important way. Now, it's obviously different species. It's a different network than one that you would find in trees and shrubs and the layers of a forest. But it's there, and it still helps your plants access nutrients, access, access water, and communicate with each other. So that becomes part of the companion planting strategies as well is sort of this, this hope that people will do their best to transition to more no-till techniques that don't disrupt the soil as they create these partnerships with their plants and, and building a plant community in the vegetable garden rather than, again, just rather than having soldiers in a row. Yeah. And why is it important to build that plant community? Well, I think it's it's important for for several different ways, right? And and really, those ways are actually interesting enough. They're the chapter, they're the structure, the chapter structure of the book, right? Because creating these plant communities is essentially companion planting, right? We're creating mixed planting. We are companion planting, creating that diversity, and so we can do it for different goals, for different reasons. And that's how the book is outlined. Each each of the subsequent chapters then dive into one of those benefits. It's improving soil health. It's managing weeds. It's managing pests. It's improving pollination. It's enhancing biological control. And it's managing diseases. I mean, those are all of the benefits of creating a plant community of mixed plants together and improving that biodiversity in the garden. When I would guess from a natural perspective, the more imbalanced we are with all of the things that you just mentioned, the easier it is going to be to grow things and the less problem we're going to have with pests. Bingo. <laughs> Bingo. I mean, there's a, an oft-used phrase. It's, it's very popular. In fact, I taught a class one time and I forget which university it was at, but I was, I was going there to teach a class and it was in one of the classrooms in their agriculture department. And I walked into the classroom and there was a whiteboard up in front of the room and on it in big bold letters was written diversity equals stability. And I actually took a picture of that whiteboard and I use it a lot in my presentations mm -hmm. because it's a very clear message. There is so much stability and you use the term balance, same thing, yep. right? In a vegetable garden or any planting really that is diverse. So the more diversity you have there, the more stability, which means the healthier the plants, the less pests, the less disease, the healthier soil, right? So that stability is gained by enhancing the amount of diversity you have in your garden. And again, people often don't think that this is possible in a vegetable garden because we're so used to those sort of victory garden visuals where everything is lined up in a row mm -hmm. and it's all in an easy, accessible pattern, it's very much modeled after agriculture, big ag, right, where you have to get equipment in there, you have to have really uniform crops. That is not the way a home vegetable garden should look like. It, it should be a mixture of plants in multiple layers growing together that has flowering plants mixed in there, that has your vegetables mixed together. I mean, that is really how you get that stability into a vegetable planting. And we're talking diversity all the way from the smallest microbes to all the plants in your in your garden, right? Absolutely. And and then that of course leads to a diversity in pollinators and beneficial insects that are that make a home in your garden, ones that help you control pests very long term, ones that improve your pollination and your yields. I mean, again, it's all linked, it's all connected together and it all goes back to which particular 
plants you decide to group together to make that diversity in your garden. Wow. And so we've been talking about those things that you can do to positively impact your garden. Can you just touch on a little bit things that uh, people do to their gardens that negatively impact this? Yes. I mean, there's lots. Outside of tilling, which we already kind of talked about and how disruptive that, that can be, absolutely any kind of monoculture that we have in the garden can be really disruptive as well, in particular with pests. I mean, it's it's much easier. And there's some interesting studies that I point out in the book that, that point to how much easier it is for a pest to find its host plant when there is a collection of that host plant together, oh, right? right. So, so if you have a big, long row of cabbages or a big, huge block of cabbages all planted together by themselves, it's going to be far easier for that imported cabbage worm adult butterfly to hone in on its host plant, right? It has a visual cue. It has an odor cue or a volatile chemical, semiochemical cue to hone in on that plant as well. So it's much easier. Whereas if that cabbage is interspersed and interplanted with dill or, you know, sweet alyssum or even pepper plants or, or some other plant in partnership with it and they're mixed together, it is far more difficult for that pest to, to make its way to the host plant. So, you know, that again, that having things in big blocks and in big lines, that's one of the negative things people do. Also bare soil, you know, bare soil doesn't mm. really exist in the natural world. I mean, it's always covered with something. So, you know, whether that cover is shredded up leaves or for me, it's more important to have like a living mulch or on the off season have cover crops, which I talk a lot about in the book in terms of uh, the chapter on soil health and the chapter on weed management. You're always having some structure at the soil level that, um, you know, helps improve the biodiversity found in the soil of all the different microbes. It obviously helps prevent soil loss and erosion, and it really protects and insulates the soil too. And one thing that I want to point out here is anything chemical-based, herbicides, pesticides, even chemical fertilizers. I can't tell you how often people walk up to me and say, you know, I'm using that blue fertilizer that I got at the big box store. Is that any good? And yeah, <laughs> I get that question a lot too. Right. And make, yeah. Making yeah. sure that you're using organic fertilizers, organic methods to do this is, is a real important big piece of this, is it not? It is. And in fact, I, you know, for me, I actually don't, I mean, I can't even tell you the last time I fertilized my vegetable garden with mm -hmm. a product. I find really that, again, when you have this diversity that exists in the garden and you return, you know, decomposing plant matter back to the soil in terms of mowed cover crops or, you know, your own compost or, again, shredded up leaves or something like that or a living mulch that's regularly mowed, you don't really have to rely on any of those products. The most I will do, and I think this is important for gardeners, is check, monitor, and adjust the pH because the pH influences the availability of almost every nutrient in the mm -hmm. soil. And if that is not at your optimum target, it doesn't matter how much fertilizer you add, it gets tied up in the soil and your plants can't access it. So the thing you should focus on is the, the pH of your soil, not necessarily adding a whole bunch of fertilizer to it. Now, and I am of the understanding that if we're compost, adding composting and top mulch regular to our gardens, that manages the pH for us to a certain extent, does it not? 
Well, not necessarily. Um, okay. It does obviously depend. It depends on your soil for mm-hmm. sure, but it depends very much on the sort of native qualities of your soil. If you have like raised beds where you've sort of had a little bit of control over what went into that raised bed, that might be the case. But what will happen, like in my in my soil here in Western Pennsylvania, we have naturally acidic soil. So our unadulterated soils here range about pH 5 to 5.5. Like that's a forest soil that has had layers and layers of leaves on it over the years. Mm. If we take a soil sample there, that's what we're going to get. And that's what I, you know, will get in my vegetable garden as well. So I can add compost. I can add that organic matter as much as possible, but it's not going to actively change that pH. It might a little bit, but it might not change it as much as I need. And that's why I feel like that regular monitoring, meaning like every four or five years, is really a good thing. And how does one go about testing the pH of their soil? So for me, I send it in to our cooperative extension service. I like the laboratory testing. I don't trust the pH probes. You know, you buy them, they're like 15 bucks and you get what you pay for on those. If you had a $300 pH meter uh, with two probes and really high quality, I would trust that a lot more. But if you don't have a university extension service to send a lab sample kit into, don't worry about it. There's actually a lot of great independent soil testing laboratories online. And you can literally just go to your favorite search engine and type in independent soil testing lab and probably come up with, you know, a half dozen companies that you could send a sample to. Or more. Yeah. We've had IAS labs on the show a while back. They're here in Phoenix and I'm sure they do it as well. Yeah, they're all over the place. And in fact, there's actually a really good, I can't remember the name of it, but you can even go on Amazon, and not to bring up that big beast, but um, you can go on there and type in soil kit, soil testing kit, and they have one that you actually send into a lab now there. It's a oh, company wow. that does them. Yeah, they didn't, they're, it's only recent within the last couple of years. So I don't, those little home kits where you put the drops of water and it tells you the color and all that stuff. Again, there's too much room for human error in that mm-hmm. one. I much prefer to send it to the experts at a lab, but there is now one that you can even buy on Amazon that you send off to a lab. Perfect. So you heard it, heard it here from Jessica. pH is the most one of the most important things to make sure that your fertilizers uptake into the plants. Did I get that right? Yep, yep, it helps. It actually influences highly the availability of all the nutrients in the soil. Got it. So how does an average gardener discern science-based information from social media postings, you know, around our sphere of where we look? It's hard. It's hard to be a a discerning digester of anything on the internet these days. So, you know, just like everything in life, you have to consider the source. You have to look at who's disseminating that information, what their background is, what type of research they have done. You know, is it cited? That's a really important thing as well. You know, that is something that as, again, a science nerd, I always look for, you know, has it been cited? Is there something to back it up? And yeah, I mean, I would, if you're ever unsure of something, Google the author, look at what their background is. Never be afraid to ask for more information on something if you doubt it. And then go to reliable sources, University Extension, you know, Master Gardener website, they can be a good source. You know, obviously our website at Savvy Gardening, we do only science-based information on there that has, you know, good knowledge backing it. But there's lots of other sources out there. You just have to be discerning about the sources that you turn to. One of the things that I started doing a few years ago is if I find a piece of data 
I like to find three different different points on the internet that are speaking to that piece of data. So I don't just take one one sighting of it and use that. If it's that important, I go looking for other other people that are saying the same thing. And that that's one of my ways to kind of work my way through that process. And I do think that that can be very effective, you know, filtering out that kind of misinformation. But I will say, though, with companion planting, there's an awful lot of companion planting information out there that is repeated over and over and over again Got on it. some website. Yep. And it's, there's absolutely no science to back it up. And again, like that's the whole reason for Plant Partners. It's because I wanted to get all the real science out there, the best science that we have on the subject, put it all together into a form that's you know usable by gardeners. And then say, hey, this is the real kind of companion planting. This is the modern take on it. This is the I, I like to call it companion planting got a reboot, right? This is this is the mm-hmm. the now way to companion plant. Wow. I didn't didn't even think about that. What is give me one of those that you look at that's not science based that you just kind of stand back and shake your head and say, Wow. Well, you know, there's there's a lot of them that <laughs> so it's hard because I don't wanna stop people from experimenting in their own garden, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, a lot of times, you know, you'll hear from a gardener, oh, I always plant my tomatoes next to my carrots or whatever. And I always have great results and I always love it. And that might be the case, but that might not be the case for your neighbor or the guy down the street or the guy on the other side of the country, right? Mm -hmm. So that's that's experiential based, right? That's your personal growing experience with it. And it's not to say that that won't be a successful plant partnership, but it certainly doesn't have the science to back it up. So, you know, there, there's some out there that I see that I'm like, what, where did that come from? But I know that there's, you know, some existing books on the market that look at sort of some old school ways to companion plant, right? Like they used to look at the crystalline structure of plant extracts under a microscope. And if this plant crystalline structure looked like another plant's crystalline structure, Uh then they were supposedly good companions. If the crystalline structure looked different, then they were supposedly bad companions. Well, that has no basis in science whatsoever, right? So, you know, I think a lot of the partnerships regularly recommended originated with things like that instead of science. What kind of science based things are we looking at around companion planting then? Like, give me maybe some specific plant combinations. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, again, it depends on which one of those purposes that you're looking for. But let's say you're looking for some companion planting partnerships for pest management, right, that can help you deal with pests. Mm -hmm. Well, there's a couple different ways we can partner plants. We can partner plants using a trap crop, so which is basically luring the pest away from the good crop into one that you've sort of planted as a sacrificial crop. So for me, one of my favorite trap crop partnerships is partnering my tomatoes with my radish. So if you have flea beetles, this is a great plant partnership because tomato plants, when they're really young, are very susceptible to flea beetle damage. It can really, you know, stunt their growth for several weeks, if not months, while they're young. But if you plant them where you already have radish growing, the flea beetles much prefer the radish to the young tomato plant. Wow. So that is a great trap crop. It's a great plant partnership. Same thing if you live in the South and you have 
stink bug issues, green southern green stink bugs uh-huh. in the in the southern U.S. You know, and you, they attack your tomatoes. Well, you want to plant a very nearby crop of cowpeas because they much prefer the cowpea plants, right? So I'm willing to sacrifice those so that I can have healthy, wonderful tomatoes. Well, and so hold that's on. one way. To- hold on, and mm-hmm. cowpeas are nitrogen fixers, and they're a great cover crop, especially. Bingo especially in the low desert because they love the summer and I mm-hmm. give away I give away cow peeves to our fruit tree buyers every year in my fruit tree program because they make great shade of the ground then secondarily the plants that are left over have pulled nitrogen from the air and the soil and they make great mulch they do indeed and in actually they're talked about in another section of the book on the soil preparation and conditioning and they're actually capable of some nitrogen transfer even while they're in a living state. So you don't have to wait for that benefit uh-huh. for them to decompose or whatever, you know, uh, or mow them or anything. You don't have to wait for that nitrogen benefit from that. You do have, there is some amount of nitrogen transfer that takes place while the plants are still living. So through the roots. that's another benefit. Exactly. Yep. And through the mycorrhizal network as well. So Again, I talk about that in the book in the soil preparation and conditioning chapter. So a lot of these plants that I recommend in the partnerships, as you can see, they have cross benefits. They're not just one benefit, but there's multiple benefits to partnering these. So that's a trap crop. But there's also pest management where you are disrupting egg laying behaviors of the pests. So that might be, you know, something like partnering your potato plants with catmint. And that partnership was shown to deter the egg laying of the Colorado potato beetle. So if that's a pest you deal with, think about interplanting your potatoes with catmint so that you have a reduced population of Colorado potato beetles. Wow. So, you know, there's dozens of examples of these studied, peer-reviewed partnerships throughout the book. Again, biological control. What are we going to plant to help lure in the pest? Well, uh-huh. one of the common ones you guys do in California all the time is... You see the organic farmers, you know, use the rows of, of lettuce and they interplant their lettuce with sweet alyssum. And that's because sweet alyssum, the blooms structure of sweet alyssum is very attractive to the surfid flies whose larvae feed on the aphids. So you have much fewer aphid problems when you're interplanting your lettuce with sweet alyssum because it's enhancing biological control. Did you just have a huge blast writing this book? It sounds like so much fun. <laughs> it was fun. It was great fun doing the photography. I mean, I didn't shoot the photos, but I got to grow out many of the plant partnerships in my own garden. And then the University of Tennessee, one of their master gardener groups, grew out a bunch of the other uh, plant partnerships. And we had some photographers sent down to them to do the shooting. Uh, Kelly Smith Trimble and Derek Trimble did a lot of the photography there. And Angelo Mandino did a lot of the photography here in my garden in Pennsylvania. Uh-huh. So it was great fun to grow out these combos, test them myself, you know, keep record of it, and then watch all the photography come together as well. Wow. And I, and I know your books have great photography in them. For those of us out there that have small gardens, can companion planting be successfully used in that space? Absolutely. And in a hundred different ways. And it's, it's really cool. I mean, my garden isn't all that big. I've got a garden that, I mean, you might think it's big. It's 20 by 30. So it's not a huge space, right? Mm-hmm. It's perfect for my family of three. But we're, I'm not talking about, you know, an acre garden or anything like that. So 
you can do a lot of these plant partnerships even in a pot. You know, plant them in a container. One of the the partnerships that I love to do always in my containers on my patios is nasturtium and zucchini plants. There was a really cool study that looked at squash bugs and squash vine borers. Mm -hmm. And we all know if you've got squash bugs, they are a real nightmare to control. And what this study found was that interplanting your summer squash with nasturtiums greatly reduced the egg-laying behavior of the squash bug wow. and damage from squash bugs and also squash vine borers as well. Uh-huh. So you can do that in a pot, you know, on your deck or on your patio if you have trouble with squash bugs there. So small scale is just fine. You know, we, we just talked about the sweet alyssum and lettuce. You know, mm-hmm. you might only have four lettuce plants in your garden, but why not surround them with four sweet alyssum plants? right? And the cover cropping stuff, like people always think that cover cropping is not for home gardeners. Like they think it's something that only farmers can do or or really big home gardens. But even if you grow in a raised bed, a four by four raised bed, you should be using cover crops. Now you have to do it smartly. You have to choose the right cover crops and you have to manage them correctly or else they're going to become weedy. But if you do that and you follow the quote unquote rules or guidelines on how to do that, you can have great success with cover crops. And, you know, people often think too, well, geez, you just said be a no-till gardener. How can I use a cover crop and be a no-till gardener? Well, the thing about cover crops is if you time your mowing at exactly the right time, you don't have to turn them under. You can just let them decompose in the soil and the debris that's the result of you cutting them down then becomes a, a layer of mulch on the soil surface. So then you get all the benefits of that as well. So it's all about planning ahead, you know, being willing to experiment strategically choose a few plant partnerships each year and then build, 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 build. What works? What doesn't work? What do I want to experiment with next year? If you're in a small space, you don't have to do everything at once. Work on building up and trialing things as you need them. And, and you know, don't get overwhelmed by it. Take joy in it and really have fun with the experimentation. And I suspect that in your book, you have a lot of plant partnerships that we can experiment with. I do indeed. And they're really, you know, clear in here as well. Like uh-huh. we actually have a plus, a plus sign. So, so this plant plus this plant yields these results, right? And again, there it's divided by the goal of the partnership. Is it to deter pests? Is it to manage disease? Is it for biological control, right? So, so I have at the start of each chapter, an introduction to how plant partnerships and companion planting can help you meet this goal. And then I list, you know, in some chapters, dozens of different specific plant partnerships that really will help you meet that goal. Wow. I want a copy of this book. It sounds great. For those of us science nerds that love to do this kind of stuff at home, what is there to document in our own spaces so that we can do our own science work? And that's Yes, and that's one of the most, I'm so glad you asked that, because this is one of the most fun things about companion planting and about science in general is, I mean, that's what it's all about. It's encouraging the research, encouraging data collection, right? Keeping track of things and recording your results. So you can do that in a journal. You can do it, you know, via photos on your phone and, you know, put the photos together. Uh, But it's documenting things like uh, what partnerships you chose to use, where you put them in the garden, you know, how closely you planted them together. Were they planted at exactly the same time or were they in succession with each other? You know, what were the variables? What was the weather like that year? Was it a particularly bad year for pests? Write those things down 
And then depending on what your mission was or what your main goal was for that plant partnership, record what your results were. You know, did you, you're not going to have to do a scientific collection of bugs in a trap net, you know, to see if you really did attract more ladybugs to your garden, but you just want to go out and make lots of careful observations yourself. Sit down in your garden, see what's buzzing around you, (laughs) see what's going on in the soil, record how your plants are doing health-wise. Are you seeing a lot of damage? Are you seeing a lot of those pests? Are you seeing, you know, lots of healthy life in the soil? You know, at least the stuff you can see with your naked eye. Record that data, keep track of it, and then remember if that's a plant partnership that you want to try again next year. You know, I think it's important for people to realize and keep in mind that all of these research papers that I looked at and compiled this information from to put together this book, all of these studies and trials were done at most of them anyway, were done at agricultural facilities, research facilities, and research farms. They weren't done in the average home backyard, right? So we are taking a little bit of a leap of faith to extrapolate that data and say, okay, it worked in a farm setting, so therefore it will work in my backyard setting. I mean, you know, We can't ever, you can't ever say that that's absolutely going to be the case, right? Mm -hmm. But the thing is, this is the best science that's available to us. There aren't studies that are done in a backyard home garden, or very few. I was able to locate a couple, but not many. Right. You know, it just doesn't exist, right? So we're taking the best science that exists on the subject, and we're modifying it for a home garden scale. But then it's up to us as the gardener to record our efforts and record what worked and what didn't work and use that information to make us a better gardener in years moving forward from there. So it's important to realize that and it's important to, you know, to take it and do with it what we can and make sure then that we record the results. And that requires a garden journal. It does. Yes, it does. It can be a notebook. It, it doesn't have to be anything official, but just something to write write down notes in is is always a good idea. Yeah. What if you wrote one on plant companions and a journal together? I don't know. Just saying. Yeah, that's a cool idea. Yeah, that's a really cool idea. Yep. So what what partnership did you try? What were all the conditions? So all the things I just talked about you needing to record, I should do that, right? Turn yeah. it into a journal. There you go. Yep. So tell us, Just kind of review for us about your book. The title is Plant Partners. What else can we learn from it? There's lots to learn from it. And there's lots to be taken from the information that's presented in the book. Not everybody is going to want to focus on soil health, although I think everybody should, but not everybody's going to want to. Maybe somebody's main concern is managing pests, or maybe they've got verticillium wilt and they want to know what plant partnerships will help them control that disease in the soil. So it does depend on what your goal and mission is as to what you can take out of the book. But I would say sort of the broad, overall, arching message that I really want people to take out of Plant Partners is this idea of, you know, diversity equals stability. It's taking that old-fashioned idea of a vegetable garden and really turning it on its ear and instead thinking of the, the vegetable garden as an ecosystem. Yes, it's one that you plant purposely. It's not a natural ecosystem. It's a manipulated one, but it's still an ecosystem. There are still so many layers of plants and so many layers of other organisms that live in that garden and and how they live and how they function is dependent on the effort that you put into the garden. It depends on the choices that you make and the actions that you take in your garden. And that's the overall message is to, to 
think carefully about those actions that wow. you take because everything is interconnected. Yeah. Wow. That is a powerful statement. Thank you so much for that. And I'm going to shift now on you. And for returning guests, I have a an interesting question to ask. And this is based in my childhood. It came from a thought I had a few years ago. And that is, as a returning guest, can you share a vivid childhood memory associated with food? It has to be hands down my mom's vegetable garden. I grew up in a house that at the time, I didn't know it, but we didn't have any money. And so basically what we ate came from my mom's garden or my dad was a hunter and a fisherman. Wow. So, you know, we never had canned corn in our house. We never, people talked about like canned peas and frozen vegetables. The only frozen vegetables we had were ones that my mom had had frozen. So I would say that probably when I was really little, especially like probably 80 to 90% of what we ate was from the garden or from my dad. So that was, I didn't, wow. yeah, I thought that's how everybody ate when I was a kid. Like, I just thought that's what you did. Everybody had a garden. Right. Everybody, yeah. you know, everybody's dad did this kind of a thing, right? So I didn't necessarily like working in the garden when I was little because mostly I got the lousy jobs like shelling peas. I remember sitting for hours on the back patio when all my friends were at the pool and I was shelling peas with my mom and my sister. Mm. But at the time I didn't like it. But now I think about like the funny conversations we had, you know, just sort of being with each other doing that, you don't get how valuable that is until you're a grown up. Yeah. Wow. How extraordinary is that? Thank you so much. She still has a garden, by the way. She's 70, almost 78, and she still has a big garden that she grows all kinds of yummy stuff in. Wow. The things we take from our childhood, huh? Indeed. Thank you so much for joining us on the show today. It's been my pleasure. Thank you so much for the invitation. Absolutely. So tell us how our listeners can find your book and find out more about it. It's called Plant Partners, Science-Based Companion Planting Strategies for the Vegetable Garden. So thankfully, the book is available anywhere books are sold. Uh, If you want to support your local independent bookseller, that's great. You can also do so through bookshop.org. The book is listed there. You can find it, of course, on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or anywhere, basically, that books are sold. If they want to learn a little bit more about me or about, um, you know, companion planting without getting the book, we do have a couple of articles about companion planting up on the website, SavvyGardening.com. And that's certainly a great place they can connect with me as well. Awesome. Awesome. And you can find show notes from today's podcast at urbanfarm.org forward slash companions. And if you want to hear more from Jessica, you can find her podcast at urbanfarm.org forward slash goodbugs and urbanfarm.org forward slash container gardening. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. One of the first things that many of us learn when we start to garden is how to water and fertilize the soil. But there is an exception to this rule and it's called foliar feeding. You should foliar feed or water the leaves of your plant with liquid fertilizer when you want certain nutrients to be absorbed better. 
Not only are the leaves great at uptaking liquid fertilizer, if your soil isn't very good or your pH is off, foliar feeding can help your veggies and fruit trees quickly get the nutrients they need to thrive. If you're ready to start foliar feeding for maximum growth yields and quality, head on over to urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves to see our selection of foliar feeding products. That's urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves.